Welcome to Mighty Filmmakers Podcast, where we focus on independent filmmaking. My name is Asatur Skane. In this episode, I'm talking to film director Tom Wilson, whose latest film was produced in the best traditions of independent cinema. What was so different in his approach? Let's find out. So I had kind of a, a, a slightly strange approach to filmmaking because I started out, I studied politics, philosophy and economics. I don't have a film background. Um, and when I left university, I moved to Romania and I was doing things like, uh, I was DJing, I was running events and I was also doing freelance journalism. So kind of like journalism and writing is really my background. And from journalism, I started to do, um, I was doing reports and I started to do radio reports because it added a new dimension to my work. I could edit, you know, I could use sound design software. So I started doing radio for Deutsche Welle, Radio 4 World Service. And then to kind of complement the radio packages, I started to add video. And I think like for men, like for me, as for many filmmakers of my generation, the Canon 5D Mark II was like a game changer because I saw it and it was the first time that I saw a DSLR that looked like cinema. You know, it had the full frame sensor and the shallow depth of field. And I, a friend showed it to me and I was like, right, this is what I need. And I, I went out and I started shooting just little documentary shorts to supplement my work. And also, you know, partly it was financial in a way because radio doesn't pay amazingly. You could do little videos and you'd get a little bit more, bit more money for it. So it was kind of like a strategy to, to kind of broaden my output. I remember the very first video that I did was... Um, an interview with a witch in Romania. So witchcraft is kind of, is a thing in certain sectors of the community. And uh, this was a Roma witch. And I went and interviewed her and filmed her doing a little ritual and stuff. And she told me about her wealthy clients that come and, and I sent it to the BBC and they used it. And then I started doing these little documentary shorts. So I did, again, because I'm based in Romania, there's so many amazing stories out here that you know, if I was based in Western Europe, I just couldn't have access to. So I did, for example, I visited the last leper colony, not in Europe, but it's the last le leper colony in Romania, in this secluded valley. And I interviewed the people that had le lived all their lives in this leper colony. And I, you know, hung out with the patients. So from documentary filmmaking, I then moved into fiction filmmaking. So my very first feature film was a mockumentary, uh, I mean, it wasn't funny, it was a fictional, it was a very serious subject, it was a, a fictionalized documentary. And I shot it exactly in the same way that I shot all of my BBC reports, my news reports. So it was me, the Canon 5D Mark II, and a little Zoom recorder. And so I was doing sound, I was doing video, I was directing, and I was working with non-professional actors. So I was uh, I was kind of applying the, the stuff that I'd learned doing documentaries. Uh, doing documentaries and applying it to the fiction world. And then um, and then the film that you saw, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, is kind of my first jump into actual proper fiction filmmaking, you know, that, that's, um, that's edited and shot as a, as a fiction film so that you have, you know, have, you have shot, reverse shot, the, the, you, you're, you're taking on all the, the cinema grammar of a fiction film, whereas my previous film, because it was a documentary or in, the, in a inverted commas, it was an inverted commas documentary uh, that had the grammar of a, 
you know, of documentary cinema. It's so interesting because my background is in DJing and music as well. Oh, no way. That's amazing. And then I moved on to journalism and, and uh, then I moved on to advertising. And I'm sure there are plenty of other filmmakers whose background is actually music. Why do you think so many people in arts sort of transition towards filmmaking? I think that's what's interesting about film, that everything comes together in film, you know, that you have, you know, obviously the music and the sound design is so important. So it attracts people that have that musical background, you know, people have done, you know, performance and, and played instruments and, and done DJing. Your film, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, I saw it at Rendance Film Festival, and as soon as I found out how you made it, what was the process, I just uh, I just had to contact you. But let's begin with a with a story. So what the film is about. So the kind of short synopsis is that it's a film about a girl in a Roma village of evangelical Baptist Christians and she dreams of going to high school. Uh, very few girls go to high school. In fact, none of the girls go to high school and very, very few of the boys even go to the high school because of the distance, the expense, etc. And so to win approval for her dream, she starts going to church and starts behaving very mature. And she starts to read the Bible and in the Bible she discovers all the radical kind of out there almost communist texts that are in the bible and she starts to shake up life in the village she starts to uh, she starts almost a small revolution among the women and gathers the women of the village to her and um unsurprisingly it doesn't end very well for her but uh for me it's almost the story of her kind of uh of her political awakening or social awakening it's kind of kind of a a story. It's a coming-of-age story, but maybe with a bit more of a kind of political, ideological twist. I'm wondering, what made you to put this particular story on the screen? I think I found the village, um, and I was fascinated by it. I, I found it actually doing a news report, and I thought this would be an, an amazing setting. Because of the kind of Old Testament feel of everything, it's kind of very flat. It's in the middle of the countryside. Um religion is so important in people's lives and I really felt I'd entered into a different world. So I had this idea, this kind of germ of a script in my head and um, the thing that made me make the film and the thing that made me push through it was Rebecca, who is the lead of the film. And I, I casting was a really long process. I went to the village. I taught English at the school for a few months as a volunteer just to try and get to know the kids and I couldn't find anyone. And all the kids that were being proposed, to, you know, suggested to me by the school liaison officer and the teachers were all the kind of the goody-goody kids who always did their work on time and kind of behaved very well. And I, I said to the, uh, the, the school's liaison officer, I said, look, I need the kid who's maybe, you know, in trouble a little bit, maybe has, um, maybe, you know, maybe a bit of a rebel, a kind of standout. And he... Uh, he took me out on the street and he pointed at a girl that just happened to be walking past and he said, what about Rebecca? And I looked at her and said hello to her and she, she was so charismatic and she had such a incredible energy and kind of a, a force that I just knew straight away that I had to make the film with her. And the film is basically built around her. She's the, she's the thing that holds it together. If it wasn't for her, there would be no film because nobody else... There are good performances in the film and people did amazingly 
because not you know none of them have have none of them have any acting experience. Um, but it's Rebecca that brings the film to life, and I think through all of the trials and tribulations and all of the struggle that we went through, it was that that kept me going. That I knew that I had a, a lead that was strong enough to to pull the whole thing off. And if it, if it hadn't been for her, I just wouldn't have made it. I would I would have given up at some point. I probably wouldn't have started if it wasn't for her, because I wouldn't have had the confidence that I had a, that I had a central character strong enough to pull it off. As most of your talent, uh, they were not professional actors. So how did your casting process look like? So the casting started off um, asking around. I kind of asked people, um, local people. I had um, uh, one kind of, uh, I would call him like almost a kind of a community leader figure. His daughter was imp in interested at some point, but sadly just wasn't right. Then I, then I taught English. I went and taught English at the school. And again, I just didn't find anyone. I, I just didn't find anyone that was interesting or had the potential. And then I got the school's liaison officer involved and he started suggesting girls and he was the person that, that pointed out Rebecca to me. Um, but once I had Rebecca on board, that wasn't the end of the problems. That was the, that was the start of the problems because uh, I had to fill up the other roles. And some of them were almost impossible because I, I, in the script I had a role for Rebecca's older sister who's 20-something, she's married, she has a daughter and she kind of represents Rebecca's future because in the village girls marry very young. I went to a wedding of, a, I think, a 16-year-old girl in the village when I was there. Girls marry very young, it's, it's kind of what happens. And so all the girls in their 20s are married and when you go and talk to them, they don't want to get involved. Their husbands certainly don't want them involved because, you know, they see it as a bit disreputable. It's not a, you know, if they're, take, if they're being paid for it, then it's like kind of, you know, a sign that they can't support their family. You know, they feel it's an attack on their kind of status as a home builder. So I had, I, I couldn't find a girl in her 20s, a woman in her 20s to get involved in the project. And, you know, I, I, I struggled for weeks with this. And I, I basically fell back on using the only girl in her 20s that wasn't married in the village, and she was my only option. It's quite clear that some cultural aspects come into play, especially if your work is based around a very specific community. The whole question of cultural representation is like a minefield. It's You have to tread so carefully, because the one thing I didn't want to do is this kind of, you know... Uh, outsider expat mentality where the British guy comes to a poor Roma village and kind of puts on his kind of colonialist goggles and, you know, sees them, them as kind of the other and, you know, or even worse, to kind of exoticize the, the gypsies, uh, the, the Roma community, to exoticize the Roma community, which is the most dangerous thing you can do. You know, I use inverted quotes around the word exotic there. Obviously, it's a very loaded and unpleasant term and what I tried to do is is not get involved and and to depict what I knew which is the life of teenagers and so for me I, I really didn't want to make anything of um I didn't want to make any I didn't want to say to the viewer this is what Roma culture is like because I don't know and it's not for me to say and Roma culture is so varied and complex and differs from village to village and family to family um, that I didn't want to kind of, you know, um, I didn't want to 
do any explaining and and to kind of try and try and even claim that I was saying something about Roma culture. All I wanted to do is make a film about struggle of being an adolescent and having these ideas and struggling for your identity and being confused and being idealistic. And for me, the background of that is their Roma culture. And it's for other people to to decide what they make of that, you know. Um, and I just, I, I let the girls guide me as well. I let I let the, the actors guide me. And a lot of the time, I just film what they were doing. So, you know, I would watch them hanging out. You know, there's the three girls that I film with were, are actually friends. You know, I, I would, when I was over there working with them and rehearsing and stuff, I would watch them hanging out and I would say, let's just film you doing what you're doing now in a scene. And I built scenes around what I saw. So I kind of, in a way, took a documentary approach to what I saw. I didn't want to, you know, I didn't want to put them in situations that conform to my expectations of what they should be doing. And some of the times, like I remember one scene, we turned up to film and Rebecca and her younger sister were doing the washing by foot. So they would put the the blankets in the in a tub and they put the soap in the tub and they were mashing it with their feet and we just got out and we started filming and you know that's a do it's a real documentary sequence that made it into the film so hopefully hopefully it, it's a respectful and kind of um nuanced representation of what i saw there it sounds like your documentary background helped you to find scenes which you would never be able to write from an outsider's point of view yeah, definitely. I mean, another good example of that was the church scenes. So um, I I was I, I spent a lot of time gaining the trust of the community by going to their churches. So the church, the churches are really fascinating places because they're they're uh, Baptist Christians. So when they pray, they pray out loud. They kind of almost speak in tongues. Everybody it's like a cacophony of voices. Everybody's sh shout, shouting and talking and praying. And so actually it was the first time I ever went to the church and I remember um, people didn't really know, I'd, I'd not really made contact with anyone in the church or anything. And I just turned up on a, they, they pray on Monday, Wednesday and Friday, not, not on Sunday. It's a completely different, completely different calendar in terms of the ritual. So I turned up on a Wednesday and I opened the door and I walked into the church and sat down at the back. And of course, everybody turns and stares at me. You know, I'm the only person, not only am I not Romanian, but I'm the only person not from the village in the church. And I think I can, you know, my plan is to sit at the back and kind of be all indiscreet. And somebody comes down from the stage and they walk to the back of the room and they take me by the hand and they lead me to the front and they lead me up onto the stage and sit me down in a chair in the middle of the stage. And so I spend the whole of the service sat at the front on the stage with everybody looking at me and I'm, I have you know obviously I have to pray with them so everybody's watching me as I pray it was kind of like a a, a, a real you know baptism by fire it was a real in, sudden introduction into into life in the church and so that then once I'd got the confidence of the church I could go in and film documentary scenes there and insert them into the film so I would film people praying um, and I would film bits of services and the you know, music's really important in the in the services and people performing. So I'd, I would have very observational bits of footage that I could then drop into the edit. It's fascinating because if you wouldn't be accepted within the community, your film would never happen. Yes, it, yes, absolutely. It was like, I think for almost a year, I was basically, I was a social worker for the community. Um, I mean, I spent a long, you know, I was teaching at the school, I was going to pray with the communities in 
two of the church, they, they have three churches and I went to the two biggest one and ones and kind of shuttled between them. Um, and I was, yeah, getting to know people in the village. And what would happen is people started to call me up to run errands for them because I, I, I don't have a car, but I had, I had to borrow a car every day to drive there. It takes an hour to drive there out of Bucharest. So every every time I wanted to go there, I had to borrow a car, get take the car, drive over there. And so Rebecca, I remember one exa- one instance is she trod on a rusty nail. So I, you know, she calls me up, I drive over, uh, pick her up, go to the hospital, sort her out, wait for the doctor to deal with her, take her to the pharmacy, pay for the bills, then drive her back to the village. And it's a day gone. You know, I would spend a day just doing that. And then, you know, another example, somebody in the village had a drink problem, like a very, very serious drink problem. They were drinking methylated spirits, um... And I did an intervention, like I staged a proper intervention. I said, look, you're not a bad person. You have a problem. This is a disease that's treatable. I took him to the doctor. We got, um, you know, the treatment for alcoholism and he doesn't drink anymore. It's like, I mean, you know, for something, you know, regardless of the artistic um, merits of the film or, or otherwise, it's like I feel that I... I would like to think that I had a positive impact on being there in the village. And then it got crazy. So like, not only was it these kind of things, but it was also people wanting to go shopping. So I would get calls from cast members who said, uh, I need to go and do some shopping. Can you pick me up? And of course, like at the start of the process, I was so eager to help and to to integrate myself. I was like, okay then. And I would drive over and I would pick them up and I would take them to the supermarket, which is like a half hour drive away. And I would wait for them and I would go around the shops with them and I would push the trolley. And then I would take them back with the shopping. You know, I would, it was pretty, it was an intense experience. And just because of, because it's a very tight community and everybody knows everyone else, it was it was very intense being so involved in such a small community and being an outsider. I'm sure not every single member of the community was open to what you're trying to do. From the start of the project, my fear was that people would start to get suspicious. You know, what is this guy doing? Especially because it's a film with teenage girls. You know, I'm a, 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 a late 30s guy with a, a two of a crew of two other guys it was just me dop and sound guy i would i would have really really liked to get um uh, some other women on the team but i just couldn't i couldn't get a female sound engineer it just wasn't possible they were all booked up and uh, i just didn't want people to start getting weirded out about it so my girlfriend was really useful because i would go with my girlfriend and i would eat with them and it kind of you know made me look like a a bit more of a conventional kind of family guy and um and yes, the, the, one of the things that happened that was just really traumatic was that somebody died. So I was shooting in the, the church and the head of the church was a really nice guy, he gave me permission. We shot in the church and then two weeks later he died out of the blue, completely un, you know, unprepared for, he had a heart attack. And the village went into mourning because he was a really real pillar of the community. And so I was very worried and I pulled out and I gave a month of just not going there just so that, you know, out of respect and also not to be seen, you know, as kind of kind of boshing in there in a disrespectful way. And then we started filming again after a month's break, which was disastrous for us, for our schedule, you know, because time was ticking. And we started shooting with... Um, 
we we were shooting with another guy who who occasionally preaches at the church. Lots of the men preach at the church, and again a, a pillar of the community and a very a very respected guy. He'd had a liver transplant a year before, and just after we started shooting with him, he also died. So this is in a very religious community where everybody sees everything as a sign from God, and people are very, um, yeah, people interpret everything. And I was terrified. I was really, really worried because I'd, I'd put in by this point. I guess we'd had more than two weeks, almost three weeks of shooting. We were almost done. I mean, I think we had another five days, six days to shoot, and I'd lost it. I mean, not only was it a personal tragedy, you know, I spent time in hospital. He, you know, he, it was a protracted illness. I went to to the hospital. I took his wife to hospital. I went to the funeral. It was just very, very traumatic, and there was a moment when I thought that the village might turn against me, and they would be like, "What has this guy done? You know, what, what this this is not good." Those are the moments of filmmaking when it's very easy to say, "I'm done. I don't want to do this anymore." How did you motivate yourself, and how did you push your cast and crew? Ah, uh, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, like I. I think I, for myself, I just pushed through it because I'd invested so much time and energy and also money by this point that I didn't want to let go. I was just kind of stubborn and I was like, we have to push through this and finish it, regardless of how good it is. You know, I kind of by this point, any idea of you know laboring over it and perfecting, I just was like, get it done, go out there, shoot it. I, you know, for me, it was I had another whatever five six days and I was like, we can do this. The the. My DOP, who's a very talented cinematographer, was really traumatized by it because he would, you know, we'd film with this 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 actor, and he was a really nice guy, and we felt very close to him. And my DOP was like really upset by it. He took it very badly. And again, I was just kind of like, "Let's do this. It's going to pass. This is something that we have to push through." And um, and for the sound guys, we basically pushed through it by changing the sound guys. That they, you know, the sound guys had a very short lifespan in this film because it was so stressful the whole experience you know we we lost a day of shooting for example because a neighbor wouldn't turn off their chainsaw you know so we would turn up to the village and we would just be like start stop start stop at the start of the filming for the sound guys it was terrible because we we were like the pied piper we had literally 30 children following us wherever we went and some of the kids were lovely but some of them just as soon as you said action they would start screaming because they thought it was hilarious So, like, we had a constantly rotating um, roster of sound guys that we kind of uh, we you know they would get to to the end of their patience, and then we had to you know bring someone else in. <laughs> From uh, everything you described so far, I can imagine faces of producers if you would try to pitch for funding. How did you approach uh, money side of the project? If you ask for funding for this, people would just say you're crazy. It's not going to happen. It's like throwing money out of the window. And that was liberating because this was it was entirely self-funded, and you know we the the sums involved are minuscule for a feature film because it was non-professional actors because I didn't have to pay many people you know I had to pay the sound guys you know I had to do the catering and you know get the car and tr- transport and and give the actors enough money to motivate them, but the sums were so small, and. Which is liberating again. Um, I wanted to, my my dream to my idea when I wanted to shoot this was to shoot something super fast and super 
easy because I was in the process of doing a longer feature fiction film. So I'd got, when I, when I made this film, I just got funding from the Romanian Cinema Council to make a proper film. Um, you know, a proper film with budget and a producer and stuff. And I knew it was going to take ages. That film is still not finished. We've not even started production. You know, this is how things work in the film world. Everything takes an eternity. And I was like, sod this. I want to make something fast and fun and easy. We planned to shoot it in two weeks. I said, look, guys, this is two weeks, 14 days. We go in, we go out. It'll be amazing. And of course it wasn't. It took six months. Um... It took six months and I think 23 days of shooting in the end. So, yeah, I mean, not having producers breathing down your neck and not having budget, you know, a, 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 an actual, you know, not having funding can be liberating. But then it's, it, yeah, it's just, um, it's very, very difficult. And also, like, even if a producer had been involved in this, uh, in this shoot, they would have been no use because everything was based around my with making a personal connection to the people. You know, if I'd have come with a producer or something, then it would have, you know, all of my work would have been for nothing because then the producer would have been the person talking to the locals and arranging them and, you know, organizing what time they had to turn up. And that bond of trust that I'd spent a long time working on would have gone. So even though I had, you know, I had assistant directors saying, look, I'll help you out if you need help, which would have been amazing, but I couldn't use them because as soon as I brought in more team members, we started looking more professional, um, people start treating you in a different way, you lose the spontaneity of the performance, you lose that documentary aspect. So I had to keep it self-financed, no producer, no AD, micro crew of three people, just to, not only to keep the, the the aesthetic that I wanted, which was kind of realistic and documentary style and fresh and credible, but also to keep the relationship with the local people. Because, you know, a, a bigger crew, more than three people, you just start to change the way that people interact with you, the way that people start thinking about the, the shoot. People start to think it's professional. People start wanting, you know, asking for more money. People start to, you know, their expectations change. So... Yeah, it was it was good that it that we had that very tight micro crew structure. Did your story change during the production? Yeah, so I so I had a script and I wrote a script and I gave the actors the script. Um, none of them really like. I'll be honest, I don't think any of them read it. You know, I I explained to them the current the the kind of narrative arc of the story, but none of them sat down and read the script. Um, I'm pretty sure, and. Yeah, so I had the script that the, the 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 kind of bold outline stayed the same, but then I had to change it because of events. So as I said, you know, a character died. So I and I'd filmed just out of pure luck. I'd filmed the start and the end, so I could use him as kind of a bookend and invent a whole new character that's kind of his his subord his subordinate that kind of takes up the slack in the middle bit. Um, so yeah, I had to invent scenes, I had to invent, I had to restructure things depending on what I could film and what I couldn't film and locations that I, you know, had access to and hadn't had, that I didn't have access to. Um, and then in terms of shooting, why, the, the, the film is in the Romani language, I think that's something I've not mentioned yet, so the Romani language is the, the gypsy language. Um, it's, it's completely unrelated to Romanian. Um, I speak Romanian, but I don't speak Romani. So what I did is I had the, we would rehearse the scenes in Romanian 
and I would give them, you know, pointers. I would say, you know, the, you, you're not doing this, you need to do this. And then they would switch to Romani. And I would say, did you say what you were meant to say? And they would say, yes. And that was all I, you know, I, I, I had to go off their, their kind of their own judgment of their performance. But to be honest, once you've, once you've got the lines down and you've got the delivery down, you know what they're saying because you can hear the intonation. You can hear, you know, you can hear if there's a missing part. So it's, it's actually easier than I expected directing something in a language that you don't know. And in a way, it's really liberating because it allows you to focus on the performance. And you're not, you know, if it's, if it's English, for example, if I'm directing in English, then every word is really important. You know, the, the emphasis that you place on a single word can change the meaning of the delivery. Whereas in, if it's in a language that nobody understands, you're free of that. You know, all that you want is the general emotion of the delivery and to, to, be, to be sure that you're kind of, you, you can capture, you, you're interested in a much broader picture of the performance, which is great because that's what matters. You know, are they in the emotional state that you want them to be? Are they, you know, are they in that zone? Are they communicating what you want? As you don't speak the language, did you have any unexpected surprises during the post-production? I did have one or two surprises. There was a moment when um, the grandmother, the grandmother says, um, there's a line where the grandmother says, your grandmother used to my sorry she says my grandmother used to work there and instead she says your grandmother used to work there and the character is her grandmother so it was a minor slip up in, so instead of instead of saying my grandmother she said your grandmother which is very very minor and of course i glossed over that in the in the subtitles i think that's fairly you know i took some artistic license there but no i was really surprised i mean i sat down and when we translated it together with rebecca it was pretty much what i wanted but also, I, I, I think it was really important for me to give the actors freedom um, not to learn lines and just to have kind of plot points. So when we had a scene, what I would do is I would say, this is how you are at the start of the scene. This is what happens in the middle. And this is what happens at the end. And I would kind of guide them. I, 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 the words that they used were really their own, even though they had a script and the words were down there that, you know, and I would kind of make suggestions sometimes like, why, how about you try like this? I would let them find the words in their own way. Um, which I, again, I think is really important with non-actors that they, they own, they have ownership of what they're saying and they feel that it's their own thing. And um, again, it just adds authenticity to the, to, the, to the performance. Could you run through one of your shooting days? How did it look like? I think I, I came back from the first day of filming and just literally burst into tears. I was like, I can't do this. I cannot, I cannot push through with this project. So a typical filming day would be, um, I would make wake up early I would have to either either I'd borrowed the car the night before, but I would have to go to my father-in-law's place to pick up the car because I don't have a car. And I would have to go and fill it up with petrol. And then I would go to the supermarket and buy the food for the cast and crew for that day, um, which was a nightmare because it had to be food that was easy to prepare because I was a local, one of the actors, the, the, the grandma in the film actually uh, prepared the food. You know, I, I paid her to be our kind of cook. So it had to be simple, quick to prepare, not involve any fancy, you know, preparation skills uh, and something that everybody liked. So we, we just ended up eating like chicken breast, grilled chicken breast and salad for like, you know, far too many days. Um, so I'd go and buy the food and then I would go and pick the team up. So I'd go to pick up the sound guy, go and pick up the DOP. And then we would drive for an hour to get to the village. 
And once we got there, we would unpack and start to, you know, I would have to call up the the actors who were involved and make sure they were there. And a lot of the time, they wouldn't be there. They wouldn't be ready. So I remember one day uh, I lost a filming morning because one of our actors had to look after her baby daughter, uh, baby, not daughter, sorry, baby sister, that you know, that morning. And I was like, well, we're meant to be filming. And she's, you know, she had household responsibilities. Um... And yes, yeah, so then we would shoot. Uh, we would shoot all morning, have a lunch break, um, which had been cooked by a local, uh, a local somebody from the local village, our, our grandmother, Rahela. And then we would shoot as long as we could in the evening. Um, and again, within the limits of the patience of the actors. You know, sometimes a day would end early just because I'd got as much as I could out of the actors and they were tired, you know, they're physically exhausted and the crew were physically exhausted. Re Rebecca was very funny. Rebecca's amazing. It was a, a pleasure to work with her most of the time. But she would have like, she had an expression in Romanian that she would use all the time. She would say, no, my pot, which means I can't carry on. And, you know, she was, sometimes she was joking and sometimes she was serious, but she was like, I'm, I can't do it anymore because we would do it over and over again. I'd be like, Rebecca, you looked in the camera or, you know, things, you know, general, general things that don't go right in a scene. And she, you know, these people have never, they had no experience of acting. And the idea of rehearsing a set piece of dialogue five, 10, 15, 20 times is just out, you know, it's, it's completely out of their experience. And it's, exhausting and it's you know it's demoralizing and you have to keep them in a positive frame of mind you know for me always positive feedback is the best feedback you know I, I come back after a take and I'm like guys that was amazing you did really good but what we need to do you know and they would make fun of me everywhere every you know every time I said just one more they were like you know they would they would make fun of me they would call me like Mr. Just One More because I was always you know pushing just for that extra take and so yeah, for the for the for everybody, it was exhausting. Also, so we shot ninety nine percent is with natural light again, just because because uh, of the partly because of the look that I wanted to go for, and partly because of the limitations. Who was the cinematographer of the project, and how did you build that relationship? So my cinematographer was Bogdan Philip, who is amazing and amazingly talented, and we're close friends, which helps obviously and. We used his camera, uh, the camera that he had back then, which was the Sony FS7, which is a great mid-range, you know, it's not the Alexa Mini, but it's better than, you know, it's better than a DSLR or something. It's like excellent for that level of filmmaking and it's fast and it's light. We, we really aligned on the look that we were going for. We knew what we wanted because we have very similar tastes and kind of cinematography and camera movement and stuff. And we wanted to keep that very observational documentary fresh feel to it and also i think shooting from the from the start we both knew that we wanted to shoot four by three as an aspect ratio um because like for, for very many reasons i mean it's a story about a girl who's co constrained by her surroundings and four by three is a very constrained uh format you have the you know the letterbox the the pillars on the left and the right so you're literally constraining your character and it's also a film about spirituality and religion and four by three gives you a lot of headspace you see a lot of sky um 
I think it's a great format for landscape, which is weird because everyone thinks CinemaScope's good for landscape. But I, for me, like four by three is great for for landscape shooting and for shooting that kind of the the the, the shooting the sky. You know, you get lots of sky in there. Four by three has the elegance of like um, old fashioned photography, that kind of medium format photography again, which gives you that kind of timeless feel. And so we were going for that look, and we had we were based on natural light and. A couple of times, actually, at the start of the shooting, we had one Kino Flow light that we start that, that we started using, and we gave up on it very, very quickly. We just realized there wasn't time to use it, and it actually looks worse because you know you have to think about the light has to be justified to not look fake, and we were just in the end hundred percent natural light, apart from the night scene night scenes where I think we brought like a, a pocket part or something or a dead or light that we stuck outside a window because we couldn't see well enough what was going on. So it was really minimal lighting, which for me is perfect. You know, I'm a big fan of that very natural lighting style. It is quite embarrassing to admit that so many filmmakers, myself included, uh, put their projects on hold because there are so many excuses um, not to make it happen, basically. Not enough money, not enough time, um, and so on, and we can continue for ages. It's, it's a strange one, because it was, it was such... It was, almost, it was almost a mistake, you know. I took on so much and was so naive and so, like, blindly optimistic that it was all, almost stupid. I mean, obviously, I'm very glad that I did it. I think, as you know... My advice to filmmakers is always, you know, just get stuff done. Go out there, do it, do it badly. I'm a bad, I'm a big fan of doing things badly, um, because if you obsess over the, you know, doing it exactly as you want to do it, you're never going to do it. I think do it badly, get it done, and move on to the next thing. Get your friends together, shoot with, you know, shoot with your great auntie Mabel, you know, shoot with your, shoot with your dog. Uh, your, my first film was shot with my girlfriend's parents. You know, it was like very. Um, Casavitis style, you know, bringing the family in, and I think, yeah, just make film. I think that's that's the way to do it, definitely. Let's imagine that you could travel in time, and uh, we can go back to pre-production of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. What would you say to yourself? Oh God, like my first instinct is to say, don't do it, which is very negative, and obviously, yeah, no. I would. What would I say? Um, yeah, I would just say, keep going. Um, I don't think there's anything that I would have done differently because, you know, there's obviously things that I learned, but I wouldn't have done anything differently. Um, I think it's just, uh, I think filmmaking is funny because you need this, you need to be constantly, you need to be constantly questioning yourself and very oversensitive when it comes to your material and your script you know you need to be you need to be very insecure as a script writer I think and as a storyteller because you need to ask yourself you know is this the right way to tell this story is this emotionally true is this narrative compelling is this scene important and I think you need to have that insecurity to make you you know to make you good but then once you start producing, you need to be the opposite. And I think you need to be a bit of a sociopath, really, once production starts. Um, 
Which is why I think we have so many incredibly arrogant asshole directors, because when it comes to production, that's an advantage. You know, you need to be the person that's saying, we are pushing through, we're going to make this no matter what. And you need to inspire your cast and crew. You know, if you need it, once you start to show weakness uh, or, or, or kind of indecision or when you start to show people that, you know, maybe this isn't going to happen, you're going to lose your actors. You know, you're going to lose your uh, people aren't going to want to give their time and their enthusiasm to somebody who's not 100 percent behind your project. So I think you have this kind of schizophrenic um, two faced uh, responsibility as a director to be utterly insecure in what you're doing and to question everything that you're saying and everything that you're trying to do with the film and then to be completely pig-headed and um, forthright in actually making it and getting it done and just going for it and not letting things stop you um, and it's really hard I mean keeping that balance is almost impossible Filmmaking to me is almost like obsession. So I want to ask you, why do you make films? Oh, I thought it's a very difficult question. Um, my, actually, my next film is about this, which sounds very self-indulgent. It is very self-indulgent, but um, filmmaking is very self-indulgent. It's kind of, um, you know, if you're going to be cynical, it's egotistical and it's vain and the world really doesn't need any more films you know we have enough amazing cinema to last us a lifetime you know but the same is true of all of the arts and i think telling stories is what we do you know that's what we're hardwired to do as humans and it's how we explain the situation that we're living through and the times that we're living through are, are always new and they always need to be reinterpreted and explained and there's all i think also it's political there is an ideological battle right now happening about how to tell the story of the times that we're living through how will the times that we're living through go down in history you know how will we be seen and you know how are we what are we going through now how do we explain it to ourselves um and i think all of the arts are about joining into that narrative. And for me, it's political. It's about pulling the narrative in a progressive, tolerant, humanistic, inclusive direction and not letting the people who not, you know, not letting the nationalists and the jingoists and the far right and the anti-Semites and the homophobes and not letting them take control of the narrative. And some people would completely disagree with me on that. People would say, there is no place for politics in art and that art is something completely separate. And I think that's garbage. I think art is inherently political. And every time you tell a story, you are engaging in politics. And I think that's what keeps me going and that's what inspires me. And I'm inspired by filmmakers and artists and novelists and creative people who do that, you know, who drag the discourse in the right direction and tell the stories that need to be told, you know, stories about vulnerable people, marginalized people, the voice, you know, giving a voice to the voiceless. And I think that's the only reason to keep doing this. And if you're not doing that, do something else. And here, I guess I have to say, thank you, Tom, for coming on the show. Thank you so much. Thank you for inviting me. And thank you for sharing your filmmaking process with our film community. To continue our film conversation, head over to mightyfilmmakers.com. I'll see you there. <laughs>